Hello and welcome to the Dr. Jones Podcast. This is episode 72. In today's episode, I'm discussing a new natural treatment for KCS or dry eye. The top eight mistakes your veterinarian is making in surgical anesthesia. Lastly, what you need to know about cat food to prevent and treat common cat diseases, such as diabetes. The Dr. Jones Podcast is on all your favorite podcast apps, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'd sure appreciate it if you would subscribe to my podcast and leave a review. Lastly, I encourage you to get a copy of my free book. It's at veterinarysecrets.com forward slash news. Now let's get right into today's podcast, Dry Eye or KCS, a new effective treatment. So what is dry eye? Carotid conjunctivitis cica, a KCS, is a condition that is also commonly referred to as dry eye. The medical term means inflammation of the cornea and the surrounding tissues from drying. It's a very common condition in our dogs, resulting from just inadequate tear production. So what causes dry eye? So tears are required to lubricate the cornea and remove any debris, other things such as infectious agents. The tear film is a mixture of mucus, fatty liquid, and water. Any condition that impairs the ability to produce adequate amounts of tear film can result in dry eye. Some of the more common causes of KCS include immune-mediated diseases, things that are attacking, say, the tear glands themselves. This is the most common cause of KCS. Unfortunately, it's fairly poorly understood. Just what we know is your dog's own body is attacking the cells that are producing tears in the tear foam. So you just get a decreased result in tear production, and then you get this kind of mucity, mucus, sort of dry-looking eye. It's thought to be an inherited disorder. There's other diseases, such as canine distemper viral infections. Medications, especially the sulfur drugs. And that was always a big thing in practice. Like, just be really aware of the sulfur drugs, because they can trigger dry eye. A decrease in thyroid hormone, or hypothyroidism. Then lastly, there's also certain things like ear infections can affect the nervous system, causing neurogenic KCS. So what are the clinical signs of dry eye? Well, most dogs have painful red and irritated eyes. They often squint, blink excessively, or just hold their eyes shut. There's often this thick yellowish muco discharge present as a result of a decrease in the water component of the tear film. A corneal ulceration is often present. And in chronic cases, there's often a history of recurring eye injuries, ulcers, chunk and you just see your dog wakes up and they've just got this kind of mucoid, dry, material covering their eye. And you'll get this chronic film. And it becomes fairly obvious. Like there's something big going on with the eye and they look dry. So what is a new alternative treatment? Well, first you're going to go see your veterinarian. You're going to get, get it confirmed. They can use a thing called an STT, a Schirmer tear test. You just put this little uh, paper white strip in each corner of the eye and they can confirm that your dog has dry eye. Most of the time they're talking about isopto eye tears along with some type of immune immunosuppressive drug. But there are some alternative options. This is a study that comes from using green tea titled The Efficacy of Green Tree Extract for the Treatment of Dry Eye and Mybomium Gland Dysfunction. It was a double-blind, randomized, controlled clinical trial study. And they're saying in people, they've an incidence rate of about 9% of dry eye. It's a very common problem, especially in people over 40, i.e. myself. Green tea extract has antioxidative, antibacterial, antiandrogen, and immune modulary properties. So the aim of the study was to evaluate the efficacy of green tea extract for the treatment of people with dry eye. And what did they conclude? They concluded that green tea extract was an effective, safe, and well-tolerated topical treatment for mild and moderate evaporated dry eyes, which is huge. So if you have a dog with dry eye, and if I were to have a dog with dry eye, I would definitely incorporate concentrated green tea drops for treatment. And the other option, you could also just start giving your dog green tea orally. And no question, that would be a huge thing that I would start doing. Eight mistakes that your veterinarian is making in surgical anesthesia. Your vet may or may not be current with new anesthesia 
anesthesia practices, things change. How vets use anesthesia 10 years ago is very different from how they should be using anesthesia today. Many are really busy or just not really even aware of all that has changed. So you need to be informed. Then ask your veterinarian if they're aware of some of these common mis mistakes, especially the next time your dog or cat is going into surgery. And this comes from DVM 360. So what are these top eight mistakes? Mistake number one, treating young anesthesia patients as low risk. While increased age does carry a slightly higher anesthetic risk, the assumption that younger, healthy patients are pra practically free of anesthesia risk is dangerous. So what they're th saying is that every healthy patient, regardless, should just receive thorough, basic, preoperative workup, including a physical exam. They're saying just minimum database, which is a simple, some simple in-house blood test including hematocrit, total solids, blood sugar. Geriatric patients, of course, require a more in-depth approach with special attention to heart function, respiratory function, and vital organ function. Most anesthesia-related deaths occur during recovery. Key, so it's really vital to monitor all patients during the entire anesthetic period. Mistake number two, not, not keeping the equipment healthy. Things such as vaporizers, part of the anesthesia machine, they need to be calibrated every three to five years. Create a pre-operative checklist or the risk of using faulty equipment. Keep your breathing systems clean and check your machine every day for leaks before using it. If you have an undetected leak, you have no way of knowing how much anesthetic or oxygen is going into your patient versus into the, into the environment. Mistake number three, not changing CO2 absorbance regularly. So this is what the gets off gas is CO2. So when CO2 reacts with the absorbent, there's an irreversible chemical reaction occurring and the absorbent changes into calcium carbonate. Over time, it turns a purple color, but it's gonna fade with the calcium carbonate. Tricking veterinarians and technicians alike in terms of they think the granules are okay and that's what your, your dog your cat is off-gassing during anesthesia, it's absorbing this excess, this CO2. So I think it's okay, it's still working, but what's happened is the calcium carbonate has got too old and it's no longer working because it gets hard and firm. So once again, it's, it means doing a checklist, changing these regularly. Mistake number four, not keeping proper anesthesia records. Anesthesia monitoring records are a legal document. It's a huge thing, right? You're actually keeping proper anesthesia records. One, for a liability reason, protecting, protecting the veterinarian, but also secondarily, it's a really important to know exactly what uh, how your dog your cat responded during anesthesia the, all the specific drugs that were given along with has there been any adverse event and did they notice something during the anesthesia so once again a huge big big key thing that every veteran should be doing but most aren't mistake number five not using an anesthesia checklist and this is huge i did a story on this how they found that in human medicine they could make such a big difference if everyone just followed an anesthesia checklist they're saying it was first used you know for pilots in the early 20th century because pilots kept crashing due to missing important details. A checklist can save, you know, your dog, your cat's life. So if you don't regularly use one, something's going to happen. It includes things such as preoperative drugs, induction drugs, other routine steps, applying eye lubrication, monitoring leads, inflating the cuff, starting fluids, doing sponge counts, and so on. And there are specific check checklists you can get online, either through the AHA as an example. Mistake number six, not, not taking a low body temperature seriously. And this is a big one, right? And it's probably the most common complication during general anesthesia and recovery. So anesthesia shuts down processes that control shivering, metabolism, and thermal regulation. Hypothermia increases stress for the patient, reduces patient welfare postoperatively, prolonged recovery, and decreases immune response. Have you ever had a dog break out with a skin infection? 
infection or an ear infection after surgery. Likely hypothermia could be the culprit. Patients start losing heat as soon as you pre-medicate them. That's given the first part of the anesthesia. And smaller patients, older patients, and certain breeds such as Daxies are more severely affected. And what they're recommending now is implementing strategies to mitigate hypothermia as soon as you can. You know, patients lose heat in four ways. It's called radiation, convection, evaporation, conduction. So wrapping uh, the dog or cat in a circulating warm water blanket in part will help raise the body temperature, that's not enough. They also say, think about doing other things at the same time, using warming lavage fluids. So fluids that are warm if you're gonna flush the inside of the belly. Utilizing circulating warm water blankets, using heated tables, you have all these options. Uh, the one veterinarian who authored this article particularly likes the hot dog patient warming system and the Chillbuster warming blanket from DBM Solutions. Yeah, let your veterinarian know about this. What about warming fluids? And the same veterinarian says yes. These are where the fluid is going in warmer too. And they're lastly saying another inexpensive proactive strategy is using a rescue blanket, which reflects the patient's own body heat back into itself, which makes huge sense. And there's even some additional tips. Uh, they said if you're, there's a certain thing you'd start using is bubble wrap. It's a good cheap option. And lastly, they encourage not to use electric heating pads as they can cause burns. Mistake number seven, letting the operating room function as a storeroom or high traffic area. So that's it. If it's if it's a surgical room, it's just a surgical room. Um, they're saying that anything higher than a 4% infection rate in young healthy patients undergoing routine elective procedures is far too high. How can this be? You know, you have to ask yourself a few questions. How clean is your operating room? How clean is the airflow in the OR? Do you keep the door to your OR, or OR closed or is it a storage area for laser and overflow surgical prep and blood draws? This is the one place where they're saying like, that's it. Like it's just for operating room and that's it. Minimize the risk of contamination by closing the door and reducing the number of trips in and out. Try not to store anything in the OR, but if you must use it for storage, keep items in cabinets with closed doors. Keep counters clean and free of dust collecting objects. Cold trays do not belong in the OR. Keep a lint roller outside the OR, he suggests, and lint roll your scrub top and pants before entering. Insist that technicians monitoring anesthesia wear a cap and mask. Anyone with a beard must have it covered. Booties do not re reduce infection. However, mopping the OR after every procedure, or at least every day, as well as deep end of weak cleaning, will do much more to help also reduce infection than booties. Some are other more low-cost tips to reduce infection. If you notice fleas crawling into your surgical field, um, you can actually give an anti-flea medication rectally. Use a clipper that's dedicated for surgical prep. So just this, right? You don't want to be shaving for you know a cruciate repair, i.e. a TPLO. The same clipper that was just used to treat an anal gland abscess makes sense, but unfortunately it happens. And they're saying if space allows, dedicate two surgical prep areas to minimize cross-contamination. One for sterile surgeries, one for other procedures. They're saying lastly, clip a against the grain of the hair and shot back the patient instead of just using a lint roller. That's a great idea. They also recommend a two-step process for the surgical suite. The first one is a rough prep before entering the OR, and the second one is a sterile prep once in the OR. You can use chlorhexidine, which I've discussed in the past. It's a really great topical antiseptic. For the final prep, they, they suggest using 99% alcohol, three to one chlorhexidine solution onto the patient's skin. Then mistake number eight is about scrubbing. This is an interesting one. Do you, do you know that human doctors don't scrub anymore? When you scrub with the, the black brushes, you make micro abrasions on your hand that grow bacteria and increase the rate of surgical infection. I didn't know that. The World Health Organization recommendation is to stop pre-surgical scrubbing and instead apply alcohol-based surgical hand disinfectant such as sterilium or Avogard your hands before going into surgery. Yes, old habits die hard, but you know even the author of this 
Dr. Wardlaw is saying stop scrubbing. Use alcohol-based hand disinfectants with the appropriate contact time instead. And if you have big contamination like fecal material or hair, use a gentle soap to wash before getting ready for, to prep for surgery. From routine equipment maintenance to low body temperature hypothermia prevention to operating room cleanliness, these tips will help your veterinarian avoid complications in routine surgical patients. The incorrect assumptions of feeding cats that are causing health problems. Here's what you need to know about cat food to prevent and treat common cat diseases. Much of what I as a practicing veterinarian was originally taught about feeding cats, both for the prevention and treatment of disease has been shown to be false. Our cats, they're obligate carnivores, meaning they need animal protein to survive. And many of them are common cat diseases are directly linked to our incorrect assumption of feeding cats the same way we feed dogs. Cats have evolved over millions of years into carnivores with unique ways to utilize the food they hunt, including the protein, fats, and vitamins in their prey. Think about what cats eat in the wild. Lots of protein and fat, not much carbohydrate. They hunt mice, birds, etc. And this core concept should be at the forefront of cat nutrition and disease. They require much higher protein than dogs. Adult cats need 29% protein versus the adult canine minimum requirement of 12%. Cats evolved as animals with very poor triggers for thirst. They're not accustomed to drinking and in the wild they would get most of their water from their prey. Canned food, for instance, is much more similar to their natural diet as it provides a lot more water, 60 to 70%, than virtually no water and dry kibble. Smaller frequent meals. Cats are adapted to eating multiple meals throughout the day. These small meals. A cat in the wild may eat up to 20 meals a day. The feel of the food. Cats are very sensitive to the feel, the smell, and the taste of the food. Most cats prefer foods that are like flesh, moist, solid, and warm. The unique metabolism of your cat and why carbs can be harmful. Although cats can use carbohydrates as an energy source, they have no need for them. They've evolved by hunting other animals, which are high protein, low to moderate fat, minimal carbs. Cats are designed for higher protein metabolism and low carb metabolism. Cats lack salivary amylase, Further evidence, they're not designed to digest carbs. They have only 5% of the pancreatic amylase and 10% of the intestinal amylase of dogs. Cats get far more of their energy from protein than most species. They have a short colon which limits their ability to use starches and fibers through bacterial fermentation. Cats lack the liver enzyme glucokinase. This is used to break down blood sugar. Glucose becomes markedly elevated after a large carbohydrate meal, but our cats lack the ability to rapidly break it down. So this has direct implications with diabetes, and I'm going to know my own cat Murray. You know, that's likely why he became diabetic. All that blood sugar overwhelming the pancreas, it either loses its ability to produce insulin or the cells are no longer responding to insulin. And so we have these diabetes cats. So in summary, you know, our adult cats need a minimum of 29% protein, not the minimum 12% that dogs have. They need minimal to no carbohydrates. So what is the ideal cat food then? Well, think about it this way, that our goal is to feed a diet that nature intended for our carnivores, staying as close as possible to the form and nutritional composition their cats would eat in a natural setting. So what is it? Canned homemade and or raw cat food. You want it to be high protein, moderate to high fat, low to no carbohydrate, and a high moisture content. And if you can take that sort of one thing in a nutshell, you can go such a long way in having a healthy cat, avoiding diabetes, avoiding urinary tract disease, avoiding obesity, decreasing the chance of fatty liver, decreasing the chance of your cat having painful arthritis. Well, thanks again for listening to this edition of the Dr. Jones podcast. I'd love it if you if you would subscribe if you've yet to do so and leave a review. You can do so on any of your podcast apps. And lastly, I encourage you to get a copy of my free book. It's at veterinarysecrets.com forward slash news.